Welcome to the Brook. My name is Richard Cable. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is where we're going to be today, specifically uh, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. The words will be on the screen so that we could track through our text together. We're in the beginning of a series, A People. Now, A People is a series where we hope to walk through what makes us us. And what moves us forward as we seek to grow a people from all people passionate for God? What are the value statements that define us, describe us, and ultimately drive us to accomplish what God has called us to do and grow into who God has called us to be? And so last week, this week, and the week to come, we're looking at the first value that our growing desire for God shapes everything. Our growing desire for God shapes everything. There is a direct line between the desires in our heart and the decisions that we make. You know that. I know that. That how we think, how we see, how we feel, and how we act are attached to desires that dwell deep in our hearts. And what we say is that a growing desire for God shapes how we see, how we think, how we feel, and how we act in beautiful, good, noble, true, and glorious ways where we are benefited, others are as well, and God is ultimately glorified because we're able to reflect that there is weight and beauty to life with Jesus and we should thirst uh, for it. But within each like value a statement, there are habits, rhythms, or streams that cultivate the value. So last week was encounter God. Encounter the God who is as he is, not how we would like him or hope him uh, to be, but as he is, because who he is, is amazing. Uh, this week, it's examine the heart. Examine the heart. I don't think that could be overstated at all. The necessity of examining our heart cannot be overstated with audacious clarity. All right. And stunning frequency, the scriptures call us to examine our heart, that God through his scriptures regularly calls us to examine our heart because he knows that the heart is who we are. We are our heart. So this is Proverbs 27, 19. It says that as water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the man. The heart is who you are. This is Jesus talking in Luke 6.45 where he says that the good person out of the good treasure of their heart produces good things. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of their hearts does evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We are our hearts. But we don't just exist as the heart. We live from that space. So this is why in Proverbs 4 like we are, we are told to guard our hearts with all vigilance and energy and attention because out of it springs forth the issues of life. We aren't just our hearts. We live from our hearts. We live, move, breathe, and act from what's happening inside of us. And with great attention, thoughtfulness, humility, we're called to examine our hearts. But the call to examine the heart doesn't mean free for all. Just figure it out. That's not the way it works. So 
I don't play checkers. I love games. I'm a gamer. I just don't play checkers. I learned early on that checkers was not the game for me. In fact, I learned several games weren't the game for me. Uno being one of them. Now my kids want to pull me into this Uno madness and I tend to resist, but it is what it is. And what I realized is games like checkers and Uno, they don't sit well with me because there's not really consistency within the rules. So even the first time I play checkers and the first time I realized, oh, this is not for me, somebody was trying to teach me and they did this move like where they jumped all of the pieces and took my pieces and they called it butterfly black magic. I was like, what is this? And I was like, you know what? This is, I'm going to move on to chess. I'm going to fall in love with it. And, and really, I'm, again, if there's not a clear set of rules or standard, it becomes free for all. And in games, that may not seem like that big of a deal, but in life, it's absolutely dangerous. And what God does because he's gracious and kind is he doesn't leave the most significant issues up to guesswork or up to us by strength and ingenuity, figuring things out. Really, he just invites us to receive and rest in the guidance he gives us. He gives us the standard of his word to understand all things, specifically issues of the heart. So Jeremiah 17, 9, uh, Jeremiah poses this reality regarding the heart. He says, man, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. It's tricky. It's complex. You know that. I know that. He says, who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 10, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give to the person what's due based on their action. So question pose, who could understand such a complex, deceitful dynamic, the heart? God says, I do because I made it. This is also Hebrews chapter four, where the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active and sharp, able to pierce even the body, joint and marrow and spirit and soul, judging the intentions of the heart. Because no one is able to hide. Everybody is laid bare before the God that they have to give an account to. And so the God who is understands our hearts and then calls us to examine them by bringing our hearts under to the perspective of who he is and what he says that we would examine our hearts well. And to examine our hearts well, we have to understand what is the aim of life? <laughs> what is the aim of our hearts? How has God designed them and what has he designed them for? What is their aim and what is their anatomy? Enter Mark 12. In Mark 12, we have this interaction between Jesus and others where he is responding to a necessary question. What is the greatest commandment? What is the goal of this all? What is the aim of life and subsequently the aim of our hearts? What is it? And in answering this question, he not only gives us the aim of the heart, but he also gives us the anatomy of our hearts. And so that'll be the flow of our time. We're going to look at the aim of the heart, the anatomy of the heart, and some areas of concern that we should take into consideration so that we could examine our hearts well. So aim, anatomy, and some areas of concern to close. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the areas of concern because that's actually going to lead us into what comes next week. But read with me and then we'll get to work. Mark um, 12, starting in verse 28, it reads like this. 
And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The Lord, our God, is the God who is and God alone. Hero Israel. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So... <laughs> That's a lot here. Now, that may be a very famous or familiar verse for many people, and rightfully so. It captures the aim of all of life. So we're in the middle of a series of questions and responses between people and Jesus. Now, some of those questions came from wicked, wayward hearts with the intention of trapping Jesus. So even earlier in the chapter, you have the Pharisees and the Herodians representing two social, political, religious groups. They come to Jesus with a question to trap him regarding, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? How should we engage in politics? And Jesus refuses to get pulled into this social, political controversy and have his voice co-opted and hijacked rather than getting pulled or dragged into this controversy, he deals with the real issue because that's the God we serve. He deals with the real issue. He deals with the issues of the heart. And in dealing with the issue, he gives them this great glorious ethic. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's, but render to God what's God. All of life, all of life should be given over to God and included in that all of life is our heart. So even this person who's now asking this question based in sincerity, at least that's how we're meant to read it, because even at the end of this exchange, he affirms what Jesus says and Jesus affirms his affirmation. <laughs> Say that three times fast, right? But, yo, what's the aim of this all? And, and Jesus, Jesus says that the first, the greatest commandment is that you would love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He references the Shema, which is this famous phrase in, in Deuteronomy 6 that the people of God would know and they would consistently recite day and night of what it meant to be in relationship with the God who is Yahweh. And so he says, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, those reflect the various aspects of the anatomy of the heart that, that's coming. But the essence of that is the entirety of who you are should be directed to God, that you are to love God. That's what decisive, consistent action and affections that we are to move towards God in love with the entirety of who we are. But then he also goes and he says, but attached to that is that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So the essence of that is that we are to love others with the sincerity and dignity that we would want directed to ourselves and honestly that we do direct to ourselves. And so what he does, think about, think about this. He summarizes the entirety of the law, the entirety of the commandments, 
the ways by which the people of God would be grounded and guided and grown in their relationship with God, the relationship with themselves, the relationship with others. He summarizes all of that with this idea and ethic of love, to love well. Love, loving well, so love God with the entirety of your heart and to love others with the sincerity and the dignity that you would direct to yourself, to love well. Now that begs the question that's helpful for examination, are we loving well? Are we loving well? That's a, that's a fair and necessary and frequent question that understanding the aim of the heart causes us to ask. Now I need to say a couple of things before we get to um, the anatomy. The first is there is a clear sequence here. There's a clear sequence here that we're meant to see. First, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That the entirety of who we are should be directed towards the entirety of who God is in love. But while we are meant to see the sequence, we shouldn't see the sequence in such a way that causes unnecessary separation. The scriptures don't give us a category for justifying or defining Loving God well, that isn't expressed in loving our neighbors as ourself. So this is 1 John. John picks up on this and he talks about how it is incongruent. It is hypocrisy to say, I love God, but I do not love people. doesn't work that way. God doesn't give us that space to exist in the space or with the category that says we could just love vertically without any horizontal expression of it. And so, yes, there's a sequence here. There is a sequence of giving ourselves wholly over to God, the entirety of our heart directed it towards him in love in such a way that we are shaped by him to go out and act accordingly. There's a sequence here, but let's See it without creating unnecessary separation and causing harm and confusion. The next thing I feel like is necessary to say here is this. This should be seen more as a response to relationship and not just an obligatory act. So this call, this aim is primarily a response to relationship and less an obligatory act. So even the Shema it was given to the people of God of old on the hills of their deliverance from Egypt. That, that God has with power, mighty hand and compassion and love delivered them from bondage and brokenness and their own sin and brought them into relationship with him. And he says, hey, by the way, this is how we're to relate to one another here. I am God truly alone, categorically different, relate to me uniquely. And so this is not just go do something. This is a response to receiving love. First John, again, 419 picks this up, that it's not even that as it relates to Christ, that we loved him first. In fact, no, we love because he has first loved us. And so loving well, quite frankly, is a response to receiving the love of God. Loving well 
is a response to being loved well by God. That actually moves us to an aspect of the anatomy of the heart that isn't as explicit in the text, but it's all throughout the scriptures. And because it's all throughout the scriptures, we're meant to see it even as we work through Mark 12, 30. So he gives us the general design of the heart, that within our heart, there are these faculties, mind, conscience, strength or will, and what we generally think of the heart, which is emotions or passions. But, but that's not the only aspect of the anatomy of the heart. It's not just our general design, it's our spiritual condition. That when we think about the anatomy of the heart, we have to think about its spiritual condition. And so the prophets of old, the scriptures are not bashful in saying that the fundamental issue of all humanity is one of the heart. That within humanity is this dead, cold, hardened heart that spiritually refuses to fall in line with the aim God would have for it, that rejects the beauty of who God is and what God says, that is unwilling to receive fully, truly, and graciously the love God has. It is not enthralled, captivated, captivated, that's not a word, captured or captivated by the richness of the God who is. It's not warm to it. And that spiritual condition of the heart, the heart being dead, means quite frankly that it's a heartbeat away from eternal separation. Because the reason it's dead is because of sin. Sin deads the heart, and a dead heart continues to sin. So this is Ephesians chapter 2, where, where, where Paul looks at the state of humanity and he says, all of us were dead in our trespasses, in our sin, in our acts, in our mind, with our passions, living according to our own desires, not God's. The result of that deadness is ultimate separation, but God, being rich in mercy and love, he sees us. He sees this condition of our heart and he moves towards us to act with the great love that he has. He makes us alive. He transforms and awakens the heart through his act and us receiving it in grace believe in it in faith the act being the life death burial and resurrection of jesus for our sakes and in our place the gospel and so if you aren't a christian your spiritual condition right now is one where you are not awakened to the richness of who god is. Now, I know some of us, there's a lot of people, not believers, who are in our space. And I just want to say that, that that's where we are. So I want to make sure that we're aware of that. And so even Christians can say, man, I, I have a new heart. I've been transformed. I've been awakened. Well, there's another spiritual condition you can be aware of. The spiritual condition is, yeah, you may not have a dead heart. Your heart might not be a corpse, but it may be cold. It may be hardened 
by continuing in sin, it may be hardened by unbelief because belief drives the heart from deadness to life. And it drives the heart from hardness to health, vibrancy, vitality, and an eagerness to respond accordingly to the God who is and what he says. So there's this spiritual dynamic at work shaping the anatomy of our hearts that we need to be aware of to examine it well, examine the heart. But there isn't just a spiritual dynamic. There is a general dynamic here. Let me read it again. These faculties, I've, I've, I've mentioned them, but I want to read it and, and, and build it out for us. He says, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Murray Caphill, um, through, specifically through his book, The Heart is the Target, has been super helpful in refining um, this for me and how we should see the faculties or the areas, the aspects regarding the anatomy of our heart, that there are really four aspects that make up this whole thing called the heart. Biblical anthropology of the heart causes us to see that it's more than just our emotions. In fact, it's the mind. The mind is the area of the heart dealing with thoughts and truth. And it's actually the entryway it's the entry point of the heart that we, we understand and then it does something in us before it moves us to act. So the, the mind is the entry point of the heart dealing with thoughts and truth. But then you have the conscious or the soul, if you will, the conscience. Now the conscious is the compass of the heart dealing with how we distinguish right from wrong and then how we respond <laughs> when we do that which we believe is right, or we do that which is wrong. So um, Taco Tuesdays are a thing in our house. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a blast. So this last Taco Tuesday, uh, I was actually late, it was a long day at work, and so I stopped by uh, La Santa Taqueria, uh, got some chips and guac, made my way home, and uh, they already had eaten, but we ended up staying up late, eating chips, guac, and then we ended the night dancing, singing, and with marshmallows. It was a whole vibe. It was amazing. But everybody had a limit to how many marshmallows they could get. Because we use the marshmallows for other things. We go roasting marshmallows, blah, blah, blah. So as we're sending the kids to bed, I'm not going to mention the kid who was it, but as we're sending the kids to bed, I'm walking away. They're walking away. Now, because I grew up in the hood, I have hood peripherals. So I saw through the corner of my eye one of the kids reaching into the bag of marshmallows and grabbing a handful. I turned. They must have heard me turn because we locked eyes. So I'm just looking and they just looking. And as I'm looking at them and they're looking at me, you can just see their like the shame come over them. Their eyes start to well up. They reach for an excuse. They realize it's not going to work. So they immediately then reach for an apology. I'm sorry. And it's a great opportunity to just work through how I love them and what forgiveness looks like and how we don't do what's wrong. But even when we do what's wrong, like there's grace for us if we're able to confess. And so it was a great moment for us. But that's what happens when we violate the conscience. When we do stuff that we know is wrong, Something happens in our heart. By the way, the scriptures speak heavily about the conscious, that it could be sensitive. And so sometimes we respond to things in a way that causes us guilt when it probably shouldn't. But it could be seared that sometimes we respond to things in a way by not having any feeling at all because we have a seared conscience. But that's the that's the conscience. It's the 
compass of the heart, dealing with how we distinguish right from wrong and then how we respond when we act accordingly or don't. And then you have the will. The, the will is more than just action, though. It's volition. It is the determination and the energy before the actual act as well as the act itself, the will. And then we have the passions, right? Emotions, the feelings, the affections, which are the deepest part of our hearts and they're the most powerful. The affections, the passions have the ability to override even the strongest of wills, the clearest of conscience, and the most rational minds, right? So <laughs> I, I talked about my kids, let me talk about myself. I have a lactose sensitivity. I refuse to use intolerance. I have a lactose sensitivity. And while I have a lactose sensitivity, I also have this strong passion for bluebell ice cream and salty donuts. They constantly collide. And so I, I, I know in my mind what will happen <laughs> when I partake in bluebell, pecan pralines. I know what's coming. Yet in moments of weakness, or maybe just this moments of I don't care. Nevertheless, in moments, I find myself being ruled by the passions of my heart that it overrides what I know to be true, my ration and reason, and it engages my will to act. Now, I mean, that's ice cream, but what if our passions are wayward? Spiritual condition again, the scriptures consistently say, apart from Jesus, we have this unregenerate mind that doesn't think the right thoughts. We, we have a seared conscience that doesn't feel conviction regarding certain things. We have this wayward will that just does what it wants because it's ruled by these passions that seek to usurp the God who is, dethrone him from his rightful place as being the center of our affections, the primary recipient of our affections and our love. But the gospel comes in and it renews and transforms all of that so that we don't live from a fragmented heart or a broken one, but from a full, whole, renewed one. So just like the aim begged the question, are we loving well? The anatomy begs the question, are we living and loving from a whole heart? Now let me say this and let me move to um, close. It's very easy to live a very fragmented life. Because some aspects of our heart, the faculties, are more readily accessed. But God calls us to live and love him with all of them, every aspect. And when we don't, we end up with disproportionate lives and distorted loves. So, so imagine if you're a mind-only type of person. It's easy for you to access that aspect of your heart. So that's where you tend to live, lead, and then love from, specifically as it relates to God, but then other people as well. You know what happens? You become dead. So I, I grew up 80s baby through and through. And so Cartoon Network, there was a show, Dexter's Laboratory. It was glorious. We would always rush home to see it. That and Dragon Ball Z. It's neither here nor there. That's a gateway to anime. Chase that rabbit. But Dexter was a genius and he was a jerk. And if you're like a mind-only person, 
You just you absorb information and your ability to connect the dots with concepts is profound, but it's detached from connecting them to some of the emotional context and implications. And you may end up knowing information, but not loving well because you're a jerk. Right. But, but, let, but let's say that you're a conscious, you, you live in a conscious that you you are very convictional. What tends to happen is convictions that are created in gray, we act or assume that they were created in that which is clearly black or white. Then we project that on others and we operate in this weird guilt, shame paradigm, constantly motivated by guilt, only motivated when we're convicted to. So we don't do normal stuff. We only lean into the shame, into the guilt, or into quote unquote strong convictions. Will, are you tired? <laughs> if you are will only, you may do a lot, but is it informed or directed well? And is it rooted in rest? Are you tired? Passions, emotions, you, you may feel deeply, but are you flimsy? Is the only time that God gets your attention is when you feel it. And so we, we must, through this anatomy, be more aware, more attentive, and more engaged to live from, love from, a whole heart, which is why we need community and we need the word of God to be brought to bear on the entirety of who we are not just the aspects of who we are that we like or more easily, readily accessible. All right. I actually want to close here um, areas of concerns. I'm not going to spend too much time here per se, because we're actually going to um, deal with those uh, next week in more depth. But I do need to mention them. There are two areas of concern. The first is woundedness that affects the heart and idolatry that resides in the heart. And so, so woundedness is when pain is experienced and we're unable to heal or move forward from that pain. Now, usually the experience of the pain is attached to dreams, fears, or desires. So it's dreams not being met, fears come into be, and desires going unmet as well. Now, Proverbs bring this out in Proverbs 13. It says, hope a deferred dreams desires, makes the heart sick, that when there's pain attached to those things, we have deep wounds and woundedness will harden the heart. And so even as we start to examine some of the faculties of our heart, a fair question is, are there areas of woundedness that we may be experiencing that are inhibiting our ability to access this part of our heart and thus love God well. And maybe the wound is attached to a person. Now, it's not just woundedness, it's idolatry. I, idolatry is, so like I love the way Paul Tripp says it. He says, idols are created not just by carving out of stone or clay, but carving out of our desires, our fears, our dreams, our hopes, right? And so, what we need to know is that we create counterfeit gods to suit our needs. But the counterfeit gods we create to suit our needs, they also seek after our love. So this is Jeremiah chapter 2. 
where, where God is challenging his people because he is fighting for their affection, fighting for their love, trying to love them well, have them receive his great, tremendous, powerful, rich, transforming love rooted in their hearts. But he challenges them. He says, listen, that you had this love for me in the past, but it's gone now. And the reason it's gone now is because you looked at me. This is Jeremiah 2.5. You looked at me and you saw fault in me and you turned away. So this is what he says. He says, what fault did your fathers find in me that you found in me that has caused them to turn away towards worthless things, counterfeit gods, carved out of hopes, dreams, desires, fears. But they turn away to these counterfeit gods that over-promise, under-deliver, because they don't have the power to, they aren't the God who is. Because they turned away towards them, they become worthless altogether. That idols exist in the crevices of our hearts. And they hold us captive before they turn us into a corpse, unable to engage well with the God who is in the here and now. And if we stay in that path, it reveals a spiritual condition of deadness, which means separation eternally from the God who is. God doesn't want that for us. He calls us to examine the heart, to thoughtfully, attentively, courageously, humbly, and with integrity look at the aim and the anatomy of the heart, keeping these areas of concern, woundedness, and idolatry in mind. So that as we gain greater awareness, we could be prepared for greater action. This is a gut check. I want us to spend today examining, not doing a thing other than asking questions of our heart. And then we can move to action. Would you pray with me? God, you are gracious and kind to us. And for that, we say thank you. Now, would you give us the courage, the humility, and the energy to examine our hearts, knowing that because it's the entirety of who we are, that we live from our hearts. In your name we pray, Jesus.